is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Moments after the Federal Reserve announced its largest interest rate hike since 1994, the stock market reacted positively. Stocks shot up yesterday afternoon. You remember that. Well, fast forward to today, and it's the total opposite. Stocks are down across the board. So again, don't look at your 401k. We go in-depth into what's happening on Wall Street. But the big shots on Wall Street always seem to come out ahead. How do they do it? And can you manage your money and come out ahead through these turbulent economic times? We'll try to find out. It's hard, though, to come out ahead when you have medical debt. A new survey shows 40 percent of all of us are dealing with that. January 6th committee has laid out what it says is a strong case showing how the former president pressured the former vice president into trying to go along with the plan to overturn the election. We'll talk about today's hearing Republicans gaining ground with Latino voters. The West continues to show support for Ukraine, but for how much longer? And new stats could have drivers rethinking how relaxed to get when you turn on the driver assist programs. So we start with money, Wall Street, stocks. Ron Nansana is senior analyst and commentator on CNBC, host of the Market Scoreboard Report. Ron, thanks for being with us. So I haven't been this dizzy since I took, I think, the uh, the boat to Catalina Island and, and hit a lot of waves. Uh, so what's happening on Wall Street? Yesterday it goes up when a lot of people thought maybe it would go down. Today it went down when a lot of people thought maybe it should go up. A couple of things happen. Number one, it's very rare that the market behaves the day after the Fed decision as it did immediately after. We've seen reversals like this on f- many different occasions. And so that part's not terribly surprising. The market, though, is shifting from concerns about inflation to concerns about growth. We saw housing starts fall 14% this morning. Retail sales were weak last month, unexpectedly. Jobless claims are starting to rise. So the psychology on Wall Street, after begging the Fed to speed up and increase the size of its rate hikes, is now worried that by doing so, the Fed will drive us into a recession, which affects corporate profits, which further affects stock market valuation. So Dow finishes down 751 points. That's 2.5%. S&P down 3.25%. NASDAQ down 4%. And it's now down on the order of 35% or more from its all-time high. So we're stuck in this bear market, and, and probably so until the Federal Reserve indicates that it's going to do something else like stop raising rates so is this uh, the fed is going to screw it up and we're going to get a recession and we're not happy about that or is it the fed is going to do what it needs to do and we're going to get a recession anyways so yeah i mean in, in a certain sense from a psychological perspective it's both right and, and 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 the fed has come under withering criticism for a wide variety of individuals which i think is wildly unwarranted suggesting either that they waited too long to raise rates given all the uncertainties that we had. I mean, if you go back to mid-2021, we didn't know there'd be another wave of, of the virus. We didn't know China would shut down. Mid-21, we didn't know Russia was going to invade Ukraine, which exacerbated all the supply chain problems, all the energy and food price problems that we're having today. So I, I think that criticism is unwarranted, but that's really what people are saying. They waited too long. Now they're going to do too much, and they're going to drive us into recession Maybe or maybe not, inflation will fall back to where the Fed wants it. So, you know, it's coming in from all sides, effectively. All right. Well, regardless of whether the uh, criticism of the Fed is warranted or not, I know if I'm in an airplane and it's going through turbulence, I want to have confidence that the pilot knows what he or she is doing. Do we have confidence? Should we have confidence that the people at the Fed know what they're doing? I think it depends on who you're talking about. I mean, I actually think Jay Powell's a, a fine Fed chair. 
Um, and, and I think there's a lot of outside sniping coming from ex-administration officials, whether under Obama or uh, under uh, others uh, who are taking pot shots at the Fed because they actually wanted the job. And I think there's more of that going on than any real consideration of the underlying economic uh, activity. Having said that, look, there's, it appears to be that there's a pretty wide split within the Fed as how quickly to proceed, how large the rate hike should be. And so I think in that regard, we, we don't have necessarily unanimity of opinion. Um, and, and we've seen this in the past, but it, it, does, it does make it a little more unsettling for markets. Uh, the economy right now is okay, but it is slowing down. And some of the GDP readings that we're getting from various forecasting houses like the Atlanta Federal Reserve now think we're either flat to slightly negative in the second quarter, which would, would not be a great development while the Fed's raising rates. So to go back to my uh, airplane analogy, I think what you're uh-huh. saying is it's kind of like, again, you're in turbulence, but the pilot's going, let's climb, and the co-pilot's going, no, let's descend. Right. Yeah. Kind of, there, there's some of that going on right now. And I, you know, listen, I prefer the pilot to, to the many co-pilots and flight attendants yeah. who are on this particular trip. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I personally think that, it, that a more graduated approach would make sense given that not only are we seeing the beginnings of a slowdown here in the U.S., but there's some complications now emerging overseas in Europe, in Japan. Switzerland surprisingly raised rates today, and that's had an impact on, on overseas markets as well. So I think it's a more complex environment than we've seen in quite some time. Are there cocktails said, on this flight? No. <laughs> <laughs> they're, Definitely they're not. Handing out whole they're, they're, they're handing you a whole bottle of Tito's and not even bothering to mix it at this point. Yeah, Ron and Sana, senior analyst, commentator, CNBC, and uh, host of the Market Scoreboard Report. Right now, it seems the rich always get richer, even with stocks slipping and even in recessions. It's regular people, you know, like us, who seem to suffer. We're already seeing that as new surveys find more and more people living paycheck to paycheck. Mary Lyons, financial advisor, founder at Benchmark Income Group. She's known as the wealth woman. Mary, does that mean I could, like, hit you up for a loan? <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Not in this economy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So, so I, I, and that is, you know, and we kind of set that up in our uh, lead-in to you. I, you know, people who are really loaded, you know, I'm talking about the Elon Musks and the, and the Buffets of the world. No matter what happens, they always seem to emerge in really rock solid shape. And sometimes they actually end up become, you know, becoming richer. Is there any strategy that the average person can use to not just hope that they don't lose too much money now, but can actually make some money now? Yeah, I think that most people go into retirement in particular thinking that they're just going to live off their assets and that they'll spend the interest and preserve the principal. And the reality is in times like this, when we start spending money out of our investment accounts, we're already taking losses. And then if on top of that, you're spending the money, you're compounding your losses. And then even when the market starts to recover, if you're withdrawing that recovery, you're really crippling your portfolio. And over the long haul, that's why people go broke. So Building a buffer against volatility or a shock absorber against what the market is actually doing will allow you to preserve your assets for a much longer time. And when done correctly, it can also mean that you can withdraw that money at higher income rates and still sustain the income over the duration of your retirement. All right. So give us an example of how to get a new pair of shocks. Okay, absolutely. So I'm going to say something that's actually really unpopular right now and probably very controversial. So listen closely. 
So there's a lot of uh, research that's been done over the past probably 30 years or so by some names that if you Googled, you'd see them writing in Forbes, uh, Michael, Michael Finke, Dr. Wade Fowl, who have discovered that the shock absorber should be created with whole life insurance. And I know that's a, that's a crazy thing to say because people hear that and they have this immediate visceral reaction sometimes. But because you're looking at a guaranteed return over time and you can never lose money, it actually works really well if its specific purpose is to act as a shock absorber for the market. And that's really probably the most important thing that that can do other than the death benefit. But, um, you know, Michael Finke and Dr. Wade Fowl, they're deans at the American College, which is one of the largest providers of education for certified financial planners. So if they change their hearts and minds about this coming from an investment focus, that's really a huge way that you can prolong the longevity of the assets that you are building, even if it means you're giving up a little bit of return while you're saving right now. Why is the life insurance option so controversial to begin with? I think it has to do with rates of return, because when you're looking at where can I get the best rate of return, it's not a whole life insurance policy. Hands down, anyone who tries to argue that it is, isn't paying attention. The stock market over time is going to create better returns. Real estate is going to create better returns. You can get better returns in private equity. So if the only thing that you're measuring is rate of return, absolutely, it's something that you should never consider. But if what you're looking at is balancing rates of return with a safety net, it's a wonderful safety net. It's kind of like playing golf. If you go and someone's trying to sell you a driver and you're like, wow, I'm going to spend 200 bucks and buy this new driver. And you get up to the tee and you swing the club and find out you're swinging a putter. The ball doesn't go anywhere. But if you get to the green and you don't have a putter in your bag, you have a big problem. And so really a lot of this is about understanding what tools are available and how should you actually be using them. Yeah. How active or not should people be in some of these situations? I saw a meme the other day and I brought it up on the show. I think it said I bought the dip and then I bought the next dip and now we've had three more dips and I'm out of money to keep buying the dip. Right, right. And and again, that's why in a situation like this, sometimes you just need to hold tight and have alternate sources of capital. One of the things that I think is really important in this situation in particular is to get away from this mentality of net worth, net worth, net worth. We're taught to think that that's what wealth is about. If you shift your focus to income creation, you end up in a totally different situation. Because if I am building passive income streams and I diversify those passive income streams, if something happens in the market and my assets aren't performing, it's not disrupting my daily life or the lifestyle I'm living. And that's where I think Americans can start making totally different choices. By focusing on income, the net worth will take care of itself over time. But if you're focused only on net worth, that frequently doesn't translate into income. Mary Lyons, financial advisor, founder at Benchmark Income Group, known as the Wealth Woman. I know. When I hear people say they, they, they bought the dip, I keep thinking, okay, I'll buy the potato chips. Yeah, it's good spinach right. dip. Yeah, yeah, that's what I think. I don't think in those terms. Right now, if you have a medical bill sitting on your desk or your table, uh, you're in a big club. New survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation finds four in 10 Americans are dealing with some kind of medical debt. Nearly a quarter have bills that are late or haven't been paid. Noam Levy is a senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News with us now. Thanks for being here. I also wonder how many people look at some of these amounts and go, you know what? I'm never going to be able to pay this off. I mean, a surprising number. It's good to, it's good to be with you. We, we, as you mentioned, did a poll with our uh, colleagues at the Kaiser Family Foundation, and we found that basically one in five people who have medical debt in this country don't expect to ever get out from under it. 
And I, I think the thing that always gets me is, you know, I, I know a lot of people in different parts of the world, and I talk to them, and they don't get it. They go, why would anybody in your country, uh, one of the greatest economies ever in the world, have to have medical debt? We don't. And what's the answer to that? You know, it's, it's, it is astonishing. I, I've spent some time in other healthcare systems around the world, in Germany and the Netherlands and the UK, and uh, I've actually spent time uh, interviewing patients in emergency rooms and, and, and doctor's offices. And when you ask them, were you ever worried about how much this was going to cost you? Uh, they look at you, I, I used to joke, they look at you as if you ask them, how's their pet penguin? I mean, they have, it, it, the question just doesn't <laughs> make sense, as you, as you suggested. And I mean, there's there's a lot of different reasons for it, but it essentially comes down to the fact that every other industrialized high income country in the world uh, basically regulates how much patients have to pay out of their own pockets for healthcare. And you hear a lot about uh, single payer healthcare systems, socialized medicine, but we're not just talking about there are countries like Canada and the UK that have fully government run systems, but Germany doesn't. The Netherlands do not. These are private systems. But the federal government, the federal government or the state government in these places has essentially said uh, you can be a private doctor. You can be a private hospital. You can be a private health plan. But the bottom line is we're going to have a set of rules that says when the patient goes into the doctor's office, they're not going to pay more than ten dollars. When they go to the hospital, they're not going to pay more than $100. We're the only system out there where essentially uh, these astronomical bills are landing in patients' laps. And even if they have health insurance, they're getting loaded down with thousands and thousands of dollars of debt. Yeah, I mean, more people have insurance now after the Affordable Care Act, right? But the prices keep going higher, so they didn't fix that part. No, they didn't. And I mean, I think it's important to note that the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, did do a lot. I mean, a lot of people got health insurance and this problem would be worse if it wasn't for the Affordable Care Act. But, you know, one thing which the Affordable Care Act didn't do was stop the rise of these high deductible health insurance plans. So, you know, 90 percent of Americans now have health insurance. But, you know, those of us who get our health insurance through work Many of us have these plans that have, you know, 2000 or 5000 or even $10,000 deductibles for families. And, you know, most people just don't have $10,000 lying around if they have an unexpected trip to the emergency room. And so, you know, I'm saying it doesn't take a PhD in economics to realize that if you only have $1,000 in your savings account and you get hit with a $10,000 bill, you're going to go into debt. Noam Levy, senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News. You know, I was uh, recently uh, at an ER at a major hospital here in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, it took about, I don't know, four and a half, five hours uh, until I saw the first doctor. But within the first 20 minutes of when I walked in the door, there was <laughs> a rep from the hospital wanting to make sure I signed all the That's forms right. so they got paid. Mm-hmm. So that kind of shows you. Make sure the, uh, the account information is down there and we'll get to you. Yeah, they weren't Tomorrow. so. Yeah, they weren't so concerned about my blood count. They were more concerned about my bank account. When we come back, uh, the January sixth committee tries to show former President Trump knew what he was doing was illegal, but did it anyway. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Today's hearing from the January 6th committee looked into evidence that committee members say shows the former president was told his plan to overturn the election was illegal, but he pressured the former vice president to go along with it anyway. This comes as the Washington Post reported that emails sent by the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas about overturning the election were far more widespread than previously known. Mariana Alfaro is a uh, politics reporter for The Washington Post and co-anchor for Post Politics Now. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, uh, let's, uh, let's take, I guess, one thing at a, at a time. Uh, let's start, before we get to the, uh, the hearing uh, this morning or this afternoon, your time, I suppose, uh, this correspondence between the wife of Clarence Thomas and a former White House attorney uh, apparently, right, is, is far more extensive in her desire to push, uh, you know, uh, the attorney and I guess the whole uh, uh, apparatus to uh, overturn the results of the, the election. Yes. Um, the emails that um, my colleagues published um, yesterday, well, not the emails, but the story on, this, on these emails was published yesterday. And it came into focus uh, just because there's a lot in there that we didn't know before. I know that uh, there hasn't been much response from, um, you know, Jimmy Thomas or her people about what she had to do, um, you know, pressuring Trump's lawyers uh, to push uh, forward with these false claims of election fraud. But um, the emails were um, received by the January 6th committee, and they definitely paint this picture um, of, of the pressure that she was putting, especially when you consider the lawyer she was communicating to with. It was John Eastman. John Eastman was um, the lawyer that played a very key role in efforts to pressure uh, Vice President Mike Pence to block the certification of Joe Biden's victory. Um, and he was the center of today's hearing. So it just kind of all comes together how this, this very select group of people were um, throwing around all these ideas, all these like pretty wild um, ideas on how uh, Pence could um, overturn the results of the election, which obviously he can't. That would be unconstitutional, but they actually like really believe it. Um, if you just kind of consider what they were throwing around as a potential excuses to do that. And when it comes to Jeanette Thomas, they're going to want to speak with her, obviously. Um, and yeah. that was kind of building all the way through the last few weeks, because it seemed like there was a drip, drip, drip of stories where every kind mm-hmm. of week or week or two was getting worse. And they said, well, she was uh, sending these texts to Mark Meadows, and then she <laughs> was sending these to, to some election officials. And now we have these to the to the lawyer. Yes, and the committee at first didn't seem inclined uh, to spend it, to want to spend its time uh, during these public hearings talking to her or even entertaining uh, the idea of investigating her a little deeper. I think that this, as you mentioned, like drip, 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 kind of has encouraged the committee to say today. Um, you know, Benny Thompson, who chairs the committee, said uh, that the panel plans to invite her uh, to to speak to them. You know, it remains to be seen if she actually would do that. I know a lot of people in Trump circle have um, uh, refused to do that, even if they've been subpoenaed. Um, so that remains to be seen, but it definitely feels like it's just the, the pressure's um, amping up for for her just because also she's the wife of a Supreme Court justice. Um, so we'll see how that turns out, but they're definitely going to try it at least. So at today's session, the public session, uh, I guess two of the, the key things that we learned about uh, was one, uh, there was apparently a fairly heated phone conversation, right, between Mr. Trump and Mr. Pence, in the morning of the 6th, uh, with the president really pressuring Pence and apparently calling him some nasty stuff uh, if he didn't go along with this scheme to overturn the election. And then I guess we also learned how close, and I'm talking about physically close, Mr. Pence was to danger that day. Yes, um, and that phone call, you know, I think we didn't know a lot of details about it. But, um, 
everyone who was uh, testifying on it before the committee uh, said, you know, it was pretty heated. Ivanka Trump remembered saying, um, uh, remember hearing the word wimp thrown around. Uh, someone else heard uh, Trump calling Pence some worse things than that. And so, you know, Trump has said that he's, he, he considers stop, to stop being friends with Pence after he decided not to overturn the election. But I think that that kind of was a break in the relationship, because what we learned today um, is that Pence insisted multiple times to the president, I can't do this for you. This is not in my powers. And the president wouldn't listen. So it definitely showed that 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 relationship kind of broke at that moment, I think. And then in terms of how physically close Pence was uh, to the danger, I, they, they showed us a map today that it shows that the, the rioters were 40 feet away from Pence as they were escorting him to a secure location. And one of his aides that testified today said he heard them. He couldn't see them, but that he was shocked to see how physically close um, they were to violence that day. And then we also have another example of, of knowing something's wrong and then saying it anyway, because apparently John Eastman was you know pushing this plan, saying Pence could do this, but then told Rudy Giuliani he wanted a pardon on the other end? Yes, that's the one that we are all like scratching our heads over just because he asked for this pardon. He, he emailed Rudy Giuliani being like, I think I should be added to the list of pardons if that's still in the works. Um, and, and Eastman, it came out multiple times today that he was fully aware that what was he, what was he, what, what he was proposing was not legal, was not constitutional. He said, you know, one of, of Pence's um, aides asked him, you know, what if Al Gore had done this in 2000? Would that, would that be okay? And Eastman was like, no, it would have been okay for um, Al Gore to do that then. And so, so, so the thing is, he kept doubling down, even saying, like, you know, Vice President Harris shouldn't do this in 2024. Uh, but he still um, uh, continued pushing um, this narrative just, I believe, because he wanted to make Trump happy. OK, so, so we, we have certainly learned so far in these hearings how many people in the Trump inner circle were aware themselves uh, that what they were doing was potentially or, or maybe even uh, they knew it was illegal at the, the time. They knew that there was a big lie about uh, Trump winning over Joe Biden. We've learned also that a lot of these people told that to the to the president. Do we know, though, whether or not Mr. Trump still believed that he was correct and all the other people who were telling him he was wrong, that they were wrong? So that's the big question here, because Tuesday kind of, uh, was it Tuesday? Monday, Monday's hearing, the last hearing, the second one, focused on that, just how much Trump knew and how much he believed. And the, and the committee really did paint a picture that Trump was aware that he had lost. Um, and, and what they're trying to gear it towards is he was aware that he had lost, but he was going to continue pushing this lie, this lie because it was beneficial for him. And I think that was that that hearing was when the committee came up with how um, much money Trump's been able to raise off this big lie. He's made $250 million at least. Um, so I think that's where they're headed towards. She's pointing out like he continued pushing this law, even if, if it was detrimental to American democracy, just because he could continue profiting off it. And, you know, all these people believe them and back them. So it definitely it, it's still fully not sure or confirmed that he fully was aware that he had lost. But it certainly seems that he knew and he just knew that he could continue running away with it. Mariana Alfaro, politics reporter for The Washington Post, co-anchor for Post Politics Now. Is the tide turning, leading more and more Latinos to ride a red wave? 
Myra Flores is a Republican who just won a special House election in Texas in what was a district dominated by Democrats for years and years and years. Republicans using this win to show they're becoming more popular among Latinos. Are they right? Are Democrats taking the growing population for granted? With us is Tim Rosales, Republican strategist, president and CEO of the Rosales Johnson Agency. Tim, thanks for coming back on the show. So special election, is it uh, like a low turnout thing and we can't learn that much from it? Or is there something here? Well, I think any election, you really have to you know, see that there is something there. Uh, the question is, what is it? Is this something that is indicative of uh, future trends or is this a moment in time? Uh, I think that you know, looking at this uh, particular election and kind of where we're at, I think you know, in a larger sense, it is an indication that not just Latinos, but uh, looking at the you know, electorate in general is willing to you know, take a look at a change in terms of you know, leadership in the House and, and that type of thing, uh, because what has been happening or what they're feeling over the last couple of years isn't, isn't working. And they're seeing that you know, at the gas pump or they're seeing that with inflation, you know, inflationary prices in other ways or the stock market, whatever it is. Um, you know, and, and, and that is, is probably guiding uh, as much as anything. As I'm sure you know, for a very long time, Democrats kind of looked at uh, the Latino and the African-American vote as almost monolithic uh, and, and kind of figured that those people were in their pockets when it came time to, to go to the polls. Uh, do you think that Democrats still believe that in spite of these results that we're, we're seeing? Do you think they're being too cocky about uh, having the uh, Hispanic and, and maybe also the black uh, vote locked up? I think that any party that takes a particular group for granted does it, you know, to their own detriment. So, you know, to the extent that the, I think that the Democratic Party does nationally and here in California, uh, I think they are misreading the tea leaves. Um, you know, there have been, uh, you know, over the, over the years, I think, uh, you know, a trend as Latino voters, uh, particularly, uh, get further away generationally from, let's say, you know, their uh, their country of origin. If you got a Mexican immigrant who is, you know, three generations now in in the U.S. or two generations in the U.S., those voters look more and more like, um, you know, just voters at large. And uh, you know, same with the I, I think the African American community certainly, um, you know, looking at kind of which parties or which groups or which politicians are best serving their needs. And right now, I think that voters as a whole, you know, from the African-American community to the Latino community to, uh, you know, everywhere in between uh, are looking at who is best serving their needs in terms of affordability, cost of living, you know, some of those, these main kind of kitchen table issues. Uh, that's, that's where, that's, I think, what's at, top, at the top of their mind, just like it is at the top of mind of every other voter. And then if you're anywhere near center, I guess at this point, you're thinking, well, anybody but these people, because things don't look so great right now. So I'm just going to vote for the other guys, and then we'll see what happens a few more years down the line. Well, we see these adjustments, right, uh, all the time in midterm elections, uh, where you see the party in charge, you know, in the White House or who has you know, control. And, and right now in the U.S. And, and, and California, the Democrats pretty much have uniform control over every house and, and the White House and the, and the governor's mansion. Uh, so, you know, is this the year where that dam breaks and you have Democrats and particularly Latino and African-American Democrats looking at crossing over? Uh, and, you know, maybe voting for voting for the person 
and that could that person could be a Republican and making that consideration. Um, 2022 could be that could be that year. We typically see those trends in, in those uh, midterm elections. And, and uh, I think that, um, you know, the, the election in, uh, in Texas could be a bellwether for that. You mentioned a, a couple of things that might uh, make a, a voter, uh, whatever group, frankly, uh, wonder whether or not it's time for a change. Uh, I'm wondering if you think that the abortion issue and, you know, pretty much any day now, we will probably get a Supreme Court, the actual Supreme Court ruling on abortion, uh, certainly uh, before the middle part of July. Um, how much is that being a, a factor, do you think, when it comes to Latino voters? Well, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think Latino voters uh, and you know other um, you know kind of uh, uh, typically you know called minority group you know voters they look at the issues like abortion and other social issues very similar to everyone else. Uh, and I think uh, that uh, in terms of this issue, uh, the Supreme Court decision, I think the the view of the Latino community will be very similar to you know to that of the population at whole. Uh, as a whole. I mean, typically, I think the one mistake that a lot of people make is to think that, well, in, on issues like abortion, or, we, you know, we have a, no, a number of others, that the Latino community is, you know, that they are more conservative. Well, that may be the case when they're behind closed doors. But it's not something that I think, particularly Latino community and, and others, they, it's not something that they talk about openly uh, as much as maybe you see uh, some other uh, groups uh, talk about those types of issues out uh, openly. So it's, it's, you know, one of those things that, you know, hey, you know, we understand because we've got, you know, we're, I think they're more tolerant uh, of, of some of those issues than, than we probably give them credit for. Uh, and, um, you know, they, 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 that reflects in, in the way that they, uh, they vote. I think that they're, you know, very, very, um, you know, they vote very much like the rest of the electorate. Tim Rosales, Republican strategist, president, CEO, the Rosales Johnson Agency. Tim, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. No end in sight for the war in Ukraine. Will that change soon? Russia continues to make progress in the eastern part of the country. The leaders of France, Germany, Italy, Romania met with Ukraine's president today in Kiev. They're pledging support, but there's concern that support could be cracking. The U.S. says it's giving Ukraine another $1 billion in military assistance, but is also in talks with Ukraine about a negotiated outcome. With us to try to decipher all these mixed signals is Chris Miller, director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program. He's also author of Putinomics, Money and Power in Resurgent Russia. Chris, thanks for being with us. Is Russia, is Russia now winning? Well, it's clear that Russia has turned around its pretty poor military performance compared to the first couple of weeks of the war when uh, Russia's military was disorganized, uh, the logistics weren't, uh, weren't sorted out. Now they're fighting like we thought they would fight from the outset. And they've succeeded in taking some territory over the past couple of weeks. But the reality is that although they've managed to take a couple of towns, the war is basically a stalemate. Uh, and thus far, it doesn't seem like either the Ukrainians or the Russians have the capability to score a knockout punch. Okay, so winning in this region, but probably can't win, and maybe neither side can. Most wars end at the negotiating table. They end by signing something. So inevitably, this has to get there, right? How does that happen? 
Well, every war ends at the negotiating table, but it doesn't necessarily happen soon. And there's plenty of examples in history of wars that lasted years or in some cases even decades. And right now, it seems like both the Ukrainians and the Russians think that time is on their side. And they both have a reasonable argument to make as to why that's true. And so until one of the sides thinks that they really need to cut a deal soon, neither one has an incentive to move towards a ceasefire. Yeah, and and one does have to wonder about uh, the patience of the American public. We'll leave the uh, Western European allies off the table for the moment. Uh, you know, initially, when everyone thought this was going to be a quick war, whatever that means, but a quick war, uh, there was a lot of support. Still is, of course, in this country. But there are, you know, there is this sort of sense that people are going well. You know, like what? When is this going to end? And how much more money are we going to send? Yeah, I think there's no good answer as to when it's going to end. Anyone who tells you they know the answer to that is, is simply overconfident. It could last for weeks longer. It could last for months longer. I think what we've learned from, about the Russian side since the war has started is that although Putin had a, uh, a variety of defensive justifications for the war, he said it was about keeping NATO off his doorstep. Since the war started, he's been much more open about his desire to take territory, not only in Ukraine, but he's also talked about taking territory in the Baltic region, uh, citing the example of czars like Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, who conquered large swaths of Eastern Europe. And so this type of territorial ambition, I think, is is quite dangerous. And it means that even if the U.S. said, let's try to find a way to stop the war, well, you need to get Putin to sign up to that. And it's far from clear that he's willing to sign up with the current territory at, as his limit. The sanctions that were put on Russia, are they withholding those better than some people had thought at the outset? It's certainly the case that the sanctions haven't forced the Russians to the negotiating table. I don't think actually most of the U.S. officials who designed the sanctions thought they were going to work in a, a matter of weeks. The, the cost on the Russian economy and especially the Russian defense sector is real, but it's going to be felt over a matter of months and years, probably not enough to force the Russians to do a deal in the short term. All right. So then that, I guess, goes back to the question. So how many more sanctions do we try to slap on the Russians? Because there was a kind of boomerang effect and we're now being sort of impacted. And some economists may argue we're being more impacted than they are, at least in the short run. Well, I don't think there's a, a good argument that we're being more impacted than they are. Um, you know, although sanctions have contributed to the inflation, the reality is that inflation is substantially higher in Russia and the uh, downturn in Russia is going to be quite severe this year. Um, but you're absolutely right that the cost of sanctions has discouraged U.S. leaders as well as allies in Europe from uh, racing forward to impose new sanctions. And I think right now it seems like the Biden administration has decided for at least the foreseeable future they're going to focus on helping the Ukrainians get advanced weaponry uh, and do less on the sanctions front. For the last you know, few weeks and when this was starting to get talked about more, people kept saying, well, you know, let Russia take this chunk and then Ukraine call it a, a end of the war. They didn't take Kiev. They didn't take the whole country, which is easy for people thousands of miles away to say easier to say than people who are in Ukraine saying, no, no, no. They've been here for years and years. We want them out once and for all. And we don't want them to take any more than they already have. Yeah, I think that's right. And and it's easy to talk about temporary ceasefires that end the fighting. The reality is that any temporary ceasefire would turn into a permanent Russian occupation of a big chunk of Ukraine's territory. And I think you'd have to assume, and certainly the Ukrainians assume, that this phase of the war, which is not the first phase of the war, also won't be the last phase of the war. 
Russian leaders from Putin to former President Medvedev, all the way down the hierarchy have articulated the view that they don't think Ukraine should exist. Uh, and so long as that's the dominant perception in the Russian elite, there's no reason to think that a temporary ceasefire would be anything other than temporary. Chris Miller, director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program and the book Putinomics, Money and Power in Resurgent Russia. Yeah, if your new car comes with a fancy, partially automated driver assist system, you probably shouldn't get too comfortable in the driver's seat. Relaxing, not paying attention, letting the car do the driving could be an accident waiting to happen. New federal stats show that automakers reported nearly 400 crashes of cars with these assist systems from last July to mid-May of this year. Who's to blame for the bulk of the crashes? Larry Prince, executive editor at DetroitBureau.com, covers the automotive world. Larry, thanks for being here. So give us uh, some definitions of kind of what we're talking about here. What are these systems, uh, just so we're all on the same page? What do they do? Um, well, all of these um, advanced driver assistance systems are ADAS. They'll be the types of things like blind spot detection or something that will help center the car in its lane. But they really vary widely from automaker to automaker as to how much they can handle. Um, for instance, lane centering. There's lane keeping assist, which will warn you, say, if your car veers over the line into another lane of traffic. Or there's there's a more advanced system that will actually keep your car centered in the lane, and you will actually feel the steering wheel move. And that's the kind of variation you have within a very similar system. And am I correct that we actually really don't know how many crashes one can attribute to these systems because, uh, for example, Tesla's cars, when they have a crash, I believe they self-report. But a lot of these other cars right. on the road do not. So if the driver doesn't report it, nobody knows. That's really true. Um, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration that issued this report um, stated that there were 392 crashes uh, due to ADAS. But as it turns out, they admit themselves that the data recording and transmission capabilities vary widely. Um, incident report data is incomplete or unverified. Um, some crashes may have been reported twice. And even the data required to contextualize the accident is limited at best. So it's kind of taken with a grain of salt to some extent. For instance, you know, Tesla is responsible for about 70% of the accidents. And Honda is, I think it's, I think it's like 23% of the, and with the other automakers like um, BMW, Honda, Ford, excuse me, BMW, Ford, um, Hyundai, Lucid, Porsche, Subaru, Toyota, VW, they make up the remaining 7%. So why is that? Like I said, some of it could be just, they don't have the information from those systems. Now, in the case of GM, that's not the case because GM Super Cruise system, which is similar to Tesla's autopilot, does self-report. So in the case of GM, they've had one crash as opposed to, you know, Tesla's 273. Um, of course, Super Cruise has not been in production as long and it has been as available as long as autopilot has. So that has something to do with it as well. So it might actually be a better system. What can we glean from this as a whole that, you know, these things are not ready to just take over yet, especially we discussed this before on the show in the case of Tesla, that they they call it autopilot or, or full self-driving. And yet you still got to keep your hands on the wheel in case that car doesn't know what it's doing yet, because it's still new. As, as it's been explained to me by the heads of research at auto companies 
doing these types of systems is kind of like watching your cell phone charge. You know, when you charge your cell phone, the first 80% comes quickly and the last 20% takes forever. That's kind of where we're at with these systems. The first 80% are, it's really, really easy to do. And they give an example of, say, you go to work every day and there's this one intersection that always seems to be a bit troublesome. And sure enough, there's an accident. The light's green, but the police officer is standing in the middle of the intersection telling you to stop. The car has to recognize that. Now, maybe the next week there's an accident again, except this time the situation is reversed. The light is red and the officer is telling you to go through the intersection. Those are the types of situations that a car on its own has to recognize. And inanimate objects are very hard for cars to recognize. And especially in an emergency situation, what it should focus on is hard for the car to figure out. You know, humans are really good at driving. Um, We have about 30,000 fatalities in the U.S. every year. That's one per 100 million miles traveled. That's, That's a darn good number, especially when you consider on some roads you're going in opposite directions. The two cars are traveling at a combined speed of 120 to 140 miles an hour. We're separated by a thin yellow line, and yet we rarely, if ever, crash into each other. That's the standard that automate, automated driving has to be better than. So, and that's uh, why it's so hard. Okay, so at, at the end of the day, is the issue really not so much the technology, but the way these cars are sold to the public, that that if if they were sold, if they sort of, you know, underplayed a bit more what these systems can do, then perhaps they would actually work, uh, you know, fairly well as uh, an augmentation to the actual driver. But, you know, I go online sometimes and look at different car uh, companies, and they really kind of pitch these things, not necessarily as self-driving, but pretty close. There can be some exaggeration. I mean, that is certainly is a part of marketing. And there also has to be realistic expectations on the part of the driver. You know, some drivers do come to this not trusting the car. And many of us have had unreliable cars where we really have reason to not trust them. Um, And you also have to keep in mind that there is other software on the cars that that are relatively outdated. You know, um, Honda, for instance, uses Android 4.0 on some of its infotainment systems. Hyundai uses Android 4.2. We're at Android 12 right now. So um, certainly the ability of automakers to have over-the-air updates in their systems is really, really important as well, so that once you buy the car, you're not stuck with outdated technology. Because keep in mind, it takes three to five years to design a car. So by the time you buy the car maybe two or three years after it's introduced. If the software isn't updated, that's eight-year-old software, and that's vastly out of date. So over-the-air updates is really important, and it's one of the things consumers should keep in mind when they are looking at these safety systems is do they have the ability to have over-the-air updates, you know, while you're plugged in or while you're driving, just to make sure that you have the latest technology. Larry Prince, Executive Director, the DetroitBureau.com. See, my, my car has all, some of this stuff on it, and yeah. what I found actually works is I yell at it. <laughs> and it seems to work. Bad car. Yeah, exactly. And it seems to... Stay you in know, your lane. Yeah. It's like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> it, it works. Just blame the car, not the driver. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. More in-depth tomorrow.